0: Chapter 6 tonight, Galatians 6, and it's always uh, difficult whether preaching a meeting coming to the last night or now as a pastor and we we come to the last night of a revival meeting, but I recognize it's just part of the equation of what God's trying to accomplish and I want to say thank you for the great spirit that has been here in the meeting, it's been a blessing uh, being here and family here, I think the last time I was here Uh, family wasn't able to come and I'm thankful that they're here and uh, one of the things that's that seems to happen whenever I'm in a meeting by myself my wife's not there I tend to preach harder because I'm in a bad mood and so I'm glad she was here and I've been in a good mood all week and um, it's just a blessing she's the kind of person wherever she goes she brightens up the room and um, and I have that same effect when I leave the room but it's just uh, we just know our strengths and weaknesses and uh, we're glad for that. I've immensely enjoyed the time once again with Pastor and the fellowship and, and appreciated the time with he and Mrs. Bloom uh, this uh, afternoon. We were able to have lunch. And, and I'm grateful for the times I've been able to come back and just just see and be impacted and refreshed by what God is doing. And um, again, your receptivity to preaching shows you have a heart for the things of the Lord. And the, the sometimes the sentiment is... It's a hard Sunday um, after a revival meeting. But I really believe if what you experienced was a personal awakening, a refreshing, a getting back to normal Christianity, then one of the best Sundays ought to be the Sunday after a revival meeting. And so uh, I I do trust that this weekend will be good. And and sometimes we get off when we're looking for that major uh, dam to break and burst and that kind of a gully washer of a meeting. I don't know that it's healthy to have gully washer meetings all the time because that's an indication we're relapsing too much. And that'll be just some slow tide rising within our lives. The psalmist said, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. There are times we fall. A, a just man's going to fall, but he ought to get back up again. We ought not lose too much ground. So I hope somewhere some things have been a help. And my desire ultimately is just to partner with the pastor and and being able to help and and uh, so that he doesn't have to do a lot of cleaning up afterwards. And and um, But uh, it's been a great blessing. Galatians chapter number 6, let's stand together and we'll read very familiar verses. In fact, we, uh, there's probably everyone here has heard messages preached from this, but as I prayed about what do I preach here at the end to close, I, I want to help us uh, always in, in talking with somebody, getting them to victory personally, in a counseling situation, and even in the gospel. I mentioned to the young people this morning in school that the gospel literally means good news. But before you can understand the good news, you've got to be aware of the bad news. Sin is the problem, hell's the consequence, but Jesus is the answer. And what we've been doing primarily is preaching the good news to the saints, revival. But before we can ever experience revival, and revival is not something, it's someone, we too have to be confronted with bad news. It's flesh. It's the emptiness of self, the arm of the flesh will fail. And just being confronted with those things, being reminded of that and getting us to the answer. He's the same one who saved us. And then after a meeting, I really want us, I am think about Canaan Baptist. We just had revival meeting last week with Jim Van Gelderen. And, and the things that, that I'll go right back and remind them of on Sunday is that uh, whatever you did to get into revival... Whatever you did to get right with the Lord, that's pretty much what you need to do to stay in revival. And to stay right with the Lord. The same intensity, the same uh, urgency. And so, just continue to apply that. And if you fall back out of being right with the Lord, whatever you did to get revived, that's what you do to get back into revival again. Let's look at Galatians 6, verse 7, through verse number 9. The Bible reads, Be not deceived, God is not mocked, for whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. I just want to preach a simple message tonight entitled, Sowing and Reaping. Thank you. Please be seated. The Bible is an amazing book. And one of the amazing features of the Word of God is that its truths are timeless. They don't change with the change of our culture. They don't change whenever the mood of our churches change. The Word of God transcends cultures. It's not shaken, it's not stirred by the inventions of men. In Paris, France, there's a museum where the Mona Lisa is held. It also contains 3.5 miles of books, science books. Yet every one of those books are now obsolete and outdated. Nobody reads even a single syllable of those books It is said that if you have a science book that is ten years old, it is nine years out of date. But the Bible, on the other hand, is completely different. 3,500 to 4,000 years old, yet it's still the world's best-selling book, read by more people around the world than any other book. And one of the reasons for that is, is that its truths are timeless. They do not change their universal principles. They can impact and influence any age, any culture, any person, anytime, anywhere. Well, one of those timeless truths I want us to look at this evening, and it's the matter of sowing and reaping. I want you to see three things here this evening. Number one, the principle of sowing and reaping. There's a principle. You know this. You've heard this. And even if you haven't heard messages preached on it, you're aware of this principle. And that is what he says in verse number seven. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Here's the principle. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Would you say that phrase beginning with the word for together? For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. Let's say it again. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That's the principle. What is it? It is this. You will harvest whatever you plant. That's the principle. Job 4 and verse 8. They that plow iniquity and sow wickedness, they're going to reap the same. We're told in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 2, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. There's a time to plant, and then there's a time to pluck up that which was planted. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 16, ye shall know them by their fruits. And then he asked the question, do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. James The half brother of Jesus said in chapter 3 of James, in verse number 11, Doth a man or doth a fountain rather send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine figs? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. See, the principle is we reap what we sow, we harvest what we plant. Now, there's three parts to this reaping what we sow. There's three parts to harvesting what we plant. And that is, you're going to reap in kind. You don't reap something other than what you've been sowing. That's why it's critical that you understand what is normal Christianity. You want to plant normal Christianity. You want to sow normal Christianity. You want to sow Bible truth because that's what you will reap. For once over man soweth that shall he also reap. In other words, the thief will be robbed. A liar will be lied to. A deceiver will be deceived. A cheater will be cheated. But the giver will be given to. See, you're going to reap in kind. Proverbs eighteen twenty four says, A man that hath friends must... Show himself friendly. Why? Because you reap what you have sown. You remember in Genesis 27 through chapters 29, the story of Jacob, a great illustration of this. He deceived his father, um, Isaac, by putting on the hairy goatskin, pretending to be his twin brother Esau, so that he could trick, deceive, cheat, and get the birthright the wealth and the blessing that was to go to his brother. And so after a successful uh, deception, he ran to Uncle Laban. He fell in love with Laban's youngest daughter, Rachel, worked seven years, but on the marriage wedding day, he married Leah instead. He reaped in kind what he had sown. You don't just reap in kind, but you also reap in time. Everyone will reap what they sow. Everyone will reap what they sow. What we sow in youthful days, we will reap in older years. What you sow in time here upon this earth, you will reap in eternity. Everybody reaps what they sow, but you may not reap as quickly as you have sown. A farmer years ago wrote to the editor of a newspaper saying, where they had religious sections, the religious columns, and they an unsaved, atheistic farmer wrote in to the editor in the religious section and he said, quote, "...I am not a Christian. I blaspheme the name of God. I work on Sundays. I do not give tithes and offerings to the work of the Lord. I do not go to church. I am a successful farmer. Here it is, October, and we're getting ready to reap our crop. And I have better crops than all of your supposed Christian friends." How do you answer that? End of quote. The editor answered and put in the newspaper these words. God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. See, the fact is, God does settle his accounts. Payday will come someday, and every man will reap according to God's time frame. You reap in kind exactly what you've sown. You will reap in God's time. You may not reap in the same time in which you've sown. Here's another example. The Egyptians. You remember that they decreed that all the male infants of the Hebrew children were to be put to death. For 80 years the Egyptians prospered. Yet the principle of sowing and reaping, it happened in God's time. Exactly 80 years after the Hebrew children were Put to death, God poured out the plagues upon the land of Egypt. And the tenth plague saw the death angel come, and every firstborn child of Egypt was slain. They reaped in God's time. They reaped in God's time. Mel Trotter, the evangelist, before he was saved, was a chronic alcoholic. After he got saved, he could only eat salt foods and drink soda water. He said, when the Lord gave me a new heart, He did not give me a new stomach. I am paying for my years of drinking. You know the name Evangelist Oliver B. Green. He made an interesting statement just months before he went home to be with the Lord. He said that he did not believe that God would even allow him to see his 70th birthday because he had dishonored his parents as a young man. He was disrespectful to his parents. He was right. He died just short of his 70th birthday in his 69th year. God allowed him to see 69 years of life. And He allowed him to see many years of fruitful ministry. But took him home just short of 3 score and 10. And that testimony of Oliver B. Green always stuck with me. Here's what Oliver B. Green said. It's a little bit long, but I want you to hear because I thought this was quite interesting. Honoring father and mother in the Lord has a promise along with it. I'm sure I will die at an early age if Jesus tarries. I will not live to be an old man. From the time I was nine years old until I was 19, I did not honor and respect my parents. I broke my father's heart. I put him in an early grave. I robbed him of his money and of his wealth. I dishonored him to the extent I brought reproach and disgrace upon his name. I was known as the black sheep of the green family. Because of my wretched living, I was not welcome in some homes where other young people were. Since I did not honor my parents, I lost the promise of long life. Upon this earth, you children who have no respect for your Christian parents, who are breaking their hearts by the things you do, the places you go, the company you keep, mark it well. You will not live to a ripe old age, because honoring godly parents promises long life and blessings on the earth. If you are deliberately disobeying godly parents, rest assured that you will reap what you are sowing. You reap in kind... You always reap in God's time. But then you also reap, looking at the principle still, an increase. You will always reap more than you sow. Hosea 8 and verse 7, For they that have sown the wind, they shall reap the whirlwind. Um, it's true. You, you reap more than you sow. Physically speaking, um, I think about the, the giant redwoods. Some of these are so large it takes 30 men holding hands to be able to surround the base of the tree, standing 190 feet tall. Gigantic. But they come from a simple seed the size of an orange seed. It reaps more than what it was sown in the ground. But we're talking about in the spiritual sense. You're going to reap an increase, you'll reap more than what you sow, spiritually speaking. And that's both positive and negative. What is the determining factor whether you're going to reap positive spiritually or negative spiritually? It all depends upon what you're sowing. Listen to what the Bible says in Mark chapter 4 and verse 20. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as, hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, some hundred hundredfold. See, whatever you're sowing is going to determine in the spiritual realm as to the increase, whether it's going to be good or whether it's going to be bad. Think about this. If you're going to invest in something in 2020, why don't you invest in the cause of Christ and invest in someone? Do you want to be somebody this year? Or do you want to be like Jesus and serve somebody this year? What if you were to reach just three people for Jesus this year? You have enough time. We have enough months in the year. If you just focus on reaching three people, you reach three people. You say, I don't know what to say. Get a good gospel track. They're all around. Get a good gospel track. I have seen people who did not know much about uh, the gospel, the plan of salvation, take a good gospel tract and simply read it to somebody else and that person get under conviction and get saved. I remember standing on a doorstep in another state with a friend that I was uh, trying to help train as as far as soul winning. And I saw them reading this verbatim and I'm thinking to myself, this is never going to work. They're about ready to shut the door on this. This isn't going to happen. When they got to the end reading it, they asked the question, would you like to receive Jesus as your Savior? And I'm sitting there being the silent partner, trying to pay attention, trying to nod. And I was shocked when the person standing there said these words. I most certainly would. I wanted to say, do what? Are you sure you understood what he just read? See, anybody can take a track and read. You read that track enough times, you're going to be able to figure out what to say. If you just focus on reaching three people, and then you work with those three people, what do I do with those three people when they get saved? Tell them they need to get in and get baptized. Tell them they need to come to church on Sunday night. If you push getting here on Sunday night... Why should I push getting them here on Sunday night? Because most people think of church Sunday morning. But if they're going to be the disciples of Jesus, following Jesus, get them used to get here Sunday morning. But push Sunday night. And when you push Sunday night, get them here Wednesday night. I always talk about on Sunday morning. I did for the longest time. Sunday morning, somehow, it would creep into the message. Because there are people who come on Sunday morning that don't come back Sunday night. Did you know that? There are actually people who come Sunday morning, don't come back Sunday night. So no matter what I was preaching, it always got to it. And I'm telling you, it bothered me. I'm thinking, I'd go home and think, man, I thought I was going to be able to finally get through a Sunday where I don't mention it. I mean, I could be preaching Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he didn't create it for those who just come to church on Sunday morning only. It just didn't matter where it was. It got in there, and it just, oh, it would bother me. Somebody said... All you ever do is talk about people coming back on Sunday night. I said, that's a lie. You come back Sunday night, you'll never hear me talk about coming to church on Sunday night. But the whole point is, we want them to follow Jesus. You reach three people. You teach them... Follow Jesus and tell them turn around and reach three people. They're bound to know somebody in their family, a loved one, a co-worker, or a neighbor. And you say, well, how do they know how to lead somebody to the Lord? Give them a good gospel track and tell them to follow this and tell them to tell others what Jesus did for them. And if they focus on reaching three people and if they in turn tell those three people to do the same, you know, at the end of five years, there will have been 243 people brought to Jesus. I think that's a good way to invest, to reap in a positive way what is sown That's an increase. Here's another illustration, Jonathan Edwards. How many recognize the name Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards, born in the 1700s in Connecticut. He attended Yale University. He later went on to serve as president of what was now Princeton. But when he was just 20 years old, God used Jonathan Edwards in one of the great awakenings and But when he was just 20 years old, he made a resolution, a personal resolution. And this was his resolution, quote, Ask myself at the end of every day wherein I could possibly in any respect have done better, end of quote. But the area that stands out to me the most that Jonathan Edwards made a resolve in to be strong was his role as a father. Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah, they had 11 children. And they always made time for his children. Jonathan Edwards committed committed to spending at least one hour a day with his children. Someone charted the 1,394 known descendants of Jonathan Edwards. Of those 1,394 known descendants, there were 13 college presidents, 65 college professors, 30 judges... 100 lawyers, 60 physicians, 75 army and navy officers, 100 pastors, 60 authors of prominence, 3 United States senators, and 80 public servants in other capacities, including governors and ministers of foreign countries, one vice president of the United States. See, that's a positive increase in reaping what you've sown. But the same is true in the negative. James 1 and verse 15, Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When sin is finished, it always brings forth death. His name was Max Jukes. He was not a Christian. He grew up in a drunkard's home. He was an atheist. 540 of Max Jukes's ancestors were also traced. Of Jukes' known descendants... Three hundred and ten died as paupers. One hundred and fifty were criminals, including seven of them being murderers. More than one hundred were drunkards, and half of the female descendants of jukes ended up as prostitutes. See, the principle is this. You're going to reap what you sow. You will harvest what you plant. You will do it in the same kind. You will do it in God's time. And you will always reap more and harvest more than what you have sown. That's the principle. But would you notice the place of sowing and reaping? Notice what it says in verse number 8. For he that soweth to his... What's the word? Flesh. All right, let's all try it together. Verse number 8. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But... He that soweth to thee, what's the word? Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The place of sowing and reaping. Listen, since all of us will reap what we sow, it is vitally important then that we sow in the right field. Wouldn't you say? Yeah. So there's only two fields that we can sow in. One is the field of the flesh. The other is the field of the Spirit. When he says, sowing in the field of the flesh... What is he talking about? Well, the flesh is simply the old sinful patterns of living. Before you were saved, those old habits of life, those old ways of thinking and acting. It's the part of us that desires our own way. It's the selfish part of us. It's the one that wants to do our own thing. It's the part of you that's constantly calling you to sin. So to sow to the flesh then is to allow its evil desires and actions to dominate you. In other words, when you harbor a grudge, you're sowing to the flesh. You refuse to forgive, you're sowing to the flesh. You entertain an impure thought, you're sowing to the flesh. You wallow in self-pity, or you control a person or a situation through manipulation or guilt, you're sowing to the flesh. You attempt to escape reality through drugs or alcohol, sowing to the flesh. You deny reality by hoping it'll just go away, It's sowing to the flesh. You deny that there's something wrong when God says it's wrong and it doesn't match up with the Bible, you're sowing to the flesh. Whenever you develop a critical attitude, you're sowing to the flesh. When you become nitpicking, you're sowing to the flesh. When you become discouraged because discouragement is a sin, you're sowing to the flesh. When you become prejudiced, when you complain, you're sowing to the flesh. When you refuse to take a stand and you stay passive, you're sowing to the flesh. When you linger in bad company, that's sowing to the flesh. When you are involved in pornography, you're sowing to the flesh. When you take risk that will strain your self-control, you're sowing sowing to the flesh. And what happens? Notice in verse number 8, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap, what's the word? Corruption. Corruption. Decay. Morally and spiritually rotten. Hey, a church, your home, it ought to be a place of life. Because if you're saved, you have eternal life. And Jesus is not just giving us the quantitative years of eternity, but He's giving us, John 10, 10, the quality of life that's found in Jesus, the abundant life. But instead, if we're not careful, careful we're sowing in the wrong place to the flesh. We're feeding the flesh. We're pampering the flesh. Instead of crucifying the flesh, instead of it being life, it becomes morally and spiritually rotten and decayed. When we choose to embrace a fleshly pattern of living, whether it's an attitude or an action, we start to spiritually decay. We go from good to bad and from bad to worse. Galatians 5.21 tells us that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Ernest Hemingway, the famous author, I don't know if many know that he grew up in a solid evangelical Christian home. His grandparents were missionaries. And his father was a devoted church man and was also best friends with the evangelist D.L. Moody. So Ernest Hemingway, he had the right influence. He was in the right environment. But Hemingway was active in the church up until his early 20s. But during the First World War, Ernest Hemingway began sowing to the flesh. And as a result, he reaped the flesh's corruption and began to experience the reality of decay. He soon became known for turning his nose at God's morality. He eventually considered the Bible to be outdated, antiquated, useless for modern men, and a hindrance to his own pleasure and way of living. He declared that his own life was living proof that a man does not reap what he sows. Well, in a mocking way, Ernest Hemingway wrote a parody on the Lord's Prayer. This is Hemingway's words. Quote, Our nada, who art in nada, hallowed be thy nada. End of quote. But in spite of this arrogant man's boasting, he reaped what he sowed, and the flesh did its corrupting work. He amassed fame and fortune, yes, but he became a chronic alcoholic, was married four times, and he said this regarding his own life, quote, I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead, and there is no current to plug into, end of quote. And it's no wonder that on a Sunny Sunday afternoon, Ernest Hemingway put a bullet into his own head and took his own life. Why? Because when you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. Ernest Hemingway didn't get away with it and no person in this room will ever get away with, re- with sowing to the flesh. You will reap corruption. But not just the flesh. But there's another alternative and I hope we choose this one. We can sow to the field of the Spirit. In verse number 8, For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. To sow to the Spirit would be the same as, I believe, walking in the Spirit. Being led by the Spirit. In other words, every time we forgive a grievance, we are honoring the Spirit. When we reject an impure thought, we're following the Spirit's leadership. When we rise above self-pity, when we leave bad company, when we refuse bad literature or social media, when we practice self-control, we're sowing to the Spirit. When we make those daily choices to sow to the Spirit, We will reap everlasting life. Again, I believe that that's referring to not just the quantity because you don't earn your salvation, but salvation, life in Jesus. John 10, 10, I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. I believe it's knowing the quality of the Spirit-filled life. So we see, number one, the principle. You're going to harvest what you plant. You'll reap what you sow. You'll do it in kind. You won't do it separate than what you have sown. You'll do it in God's time. And you'll do it with an increase. You'll always reap and harvest more than what you've sown and planted. We see the place. You can sow to your flesh or you can sow to the Spirit. But last, I want you to see the promise. Notice in verse number 9. And here's where my heartbeat was in praying about this conclusion of a meeting. For those who've made decisions, would you look at verse number 9? Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. You've made decisions over the course of your life. God's spoken to you. You've made some commitments, maybe faith promise. Maybe other areas to be a help in, in, to missions and reaching souls. And, and you just get tired. Hebrews 12 and verse 3 says, Consider Jesus that endured such contradiction of sinners against Himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. A lot of times people throw in the towel, I, I quit. I give up. But before you quit, the Bible says, consider Jesus. Who, not just in a short time, endured contradiction of sinners. His entire life was enduring the contradiction of sinners against himself. And the Bible says, would you consider Jesus? He didn't give up for you. You don't have to give up on him. The promise? Don't get weary. The word weary is the idea of being exhausted. Don't grow tired. Don't get exhausted in doing good. Don't give up. Why? Because eventually you will reap You've made good decisions. You've made godly decisions. You've made decisions to go forward for Jesus. Don't give up. Don't stop praying for the salvation of a loved one. Don't stop praying for them. Don't stop witnessing to a colleague. Don't stop inviting someone to church. You said they didn't come. I hope that they would come. They didn't come to the meeting. Keep inviting. Don't stop. Why? Because in due season, in due season, you'll reap if you faint none many years ago a scotsman he was returning from work he saw a young boy playing over in some an area that was kind of like quicksand and he saw him struggling he thought he was playing around and as he got closer he saw this young little boy was struggling And he was beginning to slip under. And this Scotsman put himself in harm's way. He rescued the little boy. He picked the little boy up and he carried him back to a very thankful father. The father wanted to demonstrate his appreciation to this man, this stranger who saved his son. The boy's father wanted to do something for the Scotsman, but the Scotsman refused. The boy's father was a wealthy man. And he said, if you will not let me do something for you, would you let me do something for your family? And the Scotsman said, well, I don't mind you helping my son who would like to go to college someday. And the father of this rescued little boy said, it's a done deal. The Scotsman's boy went off to school, one of the finest medical schools that money could buy. The boy became a doctor. The name of this young man... Was Alexander Fleming, the discoverer of penicillin. The son of the wealthy man who was saved from the quicksand by the Scotsman, he also left home, but he went to the war. Sometime during the war, he became sick and he was dying. This new medicine known as penicillin reached this soldier, and he soon was well. That young soldier was Winston Churchill. May each of us be sowing to the Spirit. And don't give up, for in due season ye shall reap. It's a promise. If ye faint not. Would you stand together with me, please?